Hello, and welcome to episode 157 of Pop Culturally Deprived, where each week we watch a movie I've never seen before, which is most of them, and talk about the good, the bad, and the bona fide. This week, we're going to be talking about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou on your Damn, We're in a Tight Spot podcast. I'm Andy Kay, and when I'm not watching Southern movies that pretend to be musicals, I'm probably on Twitter at Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. I'm watching any film, whether it's Southern musical, not Southern, not a musical. I'm on Twitter <laughs> at Matthew Vose. Okay. Good. We asked everyone to help uh, recommend us a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, last week, on a recent recording. That sounds good. Yep. A recent recording. Um, and, and just to say the same sort of thing again, it's the best way to help us grow, help new people discover us. This is a good time of year to do it. There's a lot of movie chat going on. Um, obviously, there's been some big award ceremonies recently. There's some big trailers coming out as, as the year kicks on. So if you know any friends, if you want to give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, use the hashtag PC Deprived um, or reference the Eloquent Gushing Network, reference Mandy and my, myself, do say... Hey, here's a good movie show. We cover a lot of stuff. We've covered some Oscar films in the past. Godfather? Yes. Sunset Boulevard? I don't think that won. It was nominated. Oh, I mean, we've covered a lot of movies that have won Academy Awards. Not necessarily Best Picture. Yeah, you see, yeah, we cover films that win, like, Best Costume, Best Effects. We do. Absolutely. (laughs) Schindler's List. Schindler's List. One of our great episodes, actually. Go and recommend (laughs) Schindler's List. Yes. Um, no, it, it it means so much to us when we see people doing that. So we're we're going to mention it again. If you uh, know people who like movies, or if you just want to tell all of your many hundreds and thousands of followers, hey, go listen to Pop Culture Deprived. They're cool. They talk about movies, and they're kind of fun. Kind of fun. You're fun. A little bit fun. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I take it much too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Never. So we're back with the Cohen Brothers. We are. What other Coen Brothers movie did we do? 154 episodes ago, we did our first Coen Brothers episode, and that wasn't even me. Oh, that was The Big Lebowski? Yes. Yes? Yes. I remember that. Okay. And and I only just remembered it when I was thinking about, like, okay, what are we going to talk about? Oh, it's the Coen Brothers. We can talk, wow, we've not covered any of them before, so we can talk about how great the Coen Brothers are and how exciting it is to finally get into them. Oh, no, we covered the cult one already. we did what that was episode three something like that way back when yeah um and and it's funny big lebowski is like one of the you know number one cult films of all time type things Mm -hmm. except it was referenced in avengers endgame i do not consider that a cult hit anymore that is a well-known mainstream hit (laughs) okay okay yes fair enough it has transitioned it has yeah it has made it um, and it's there's almost kind of three strata of Coen Brothers films. There's the Fargo, No Country for Old Men. Um, you know, they're, they're number one ace films that everyone loves that are, you know, everyone's seen because they're so great, Mandy. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's the middle section, which are films that, you know, hit that cult bit very well. Things like The Big Lebowski, maybe The Hudsucker Proxy. Um is that Tucker Proxy? Is that what it's called? Yes, that is what it's called. Okay, thank you. Because um, I've gone to their page and there's... Oh, here we go. Coen Brothers Filmography, Hard Tucker Proxy. Um, and uh, True Grit, I think, Hail Caesar, films like that. And then there are films that divide opinion. And I feel like this might be one of them. Because there's other things like Burn After Reading, which I didn't hugely enjoy. Intolerable Cruelty, which did some interesting stuff, but kind of hit Mr. Mark and oh brother out there which some people love some people don't even remember <laughs> so can I tell you something Go on. I have seen exactly two Coen Brothers films well I mean that's you know both knowing... of which we've done on this show <laughs> yeah knowing what we know about you that's not the most surprising thing 
Um, yeah. I mean, I've heard of a lot of these because they oh, are, well. I mean, they are famous, but I, yeah, I haven't seen them. Um, there is one director who has directed whose films I have seen more than the Coen brothers. And that's only by one. And who is that? Are you going to guess? No. Okay. Spielberg. I've seen 19 Spielberg. Oh, of course. And 18 Coen brothers. Okay. All right. Interesting. Because mm. they do interesting films and, you know, films that mix comedy and realism and drama in, in interesting ways to better or lesser degrees. How come you've not seen any of them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So I haven't seen this one because right. I'm pretty sure I was being snobby against George Clooney at the time. Okay. Yep. Because we were kind of in the like the tail end of the Brad Pitt, George Clooney, like heyday. Or like maybe the beginning of it. I don't know. Somewhere in there. Why are you giving me this look? <laughs> You have not looked at his filmography, have you? <laughs> I'm not talking about his movies. I'm talking about when teenage girls were going batshit crazy over Brad Pitt and George Clooney. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. And that's why I was being snobby against George Clooney, because I didn't want to do that. Okay. So and that's kind of when this movie came out. Like, the year after this comes out is Ocean's Eleven. Okay. So does, uh, and maybe this is my, you know, not being a teenage girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> understanding of, you know, who you go about shit crazy over. Um, Ocean's Eleven, for me, marks the beginning of they are fully mainstream. Everyone loves them because they are hunky and smooth. But is is that actually a transition from they are hunky in the way Brad Pitt was in Thelma and Louise into, and now they look good in a suit and do grown up mm-hmm. crime? I think so. Okay. My memory is that Ocean's Eleven was this culmination. Like, oh my God, they're finally doing a movie together. Okay. Kind of thing. Right. Um, I, I could be completely remembering this wrong, but that is, that's my memory of Teenage Mandy's experience of George Clooney and Brad Pitt. Like they, those two names went together for me in high school and I don't know why because they didn't do movies together until Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm. But they were the hunky, hunky boys. Interesting. Because, yeah, one was a TV actor. One was a film actor. Mm-hmm. One, because I think George Clooney didn't get into modeling until he became the slightly older, you know, very foxy kind of guy. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, as far as the rest of the Coen brothers, I have no idea. Okay. I think th- they mostly did genres of movies. Like, th- they do... Apart from, like, The Big Lebowski, it, it feels like they do more serious films. And you can argue that The Big Lebowski has a serious slant. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't interested in those Got it. when I was younger. Mm-hmm. That's so. what, what I think I like about them, because they are serious dramas, but they are also very, very funny. Okay. I think. And, right. you know, your mileage may vary on quite how funny they are. I think part of the thing is, of course, I came to them with Fargo, which is arguably their best film. Certainly it's the one they okay. won the Academy Award for. Speaking of Academy Award winners. Um, All right. So. I, yeah, haven't seen it, so no. can't well, say anything about we, it. We, we will come to it, don't worry. So, however, <laughs> however, all that said, this is possibly my favourite one of their films. Really? Yeah. I adore okay. this. This is, it, this is pretty much perfection for me. No. Okay. No, let's scratch that. Because Fargo, I would say, is perfection. Fargo is another one on that short list of perfect films. Okay. Does no wrong. I don't think this does no wrong. It's just hugely satisfying. Interesting. Okay. You sound a little bit like Joseph. We watched this together and I'm he not, not was constantly... <laughs> he was constantly like commenting on I didn't understand this at the time and now blah blah blah, blah you know and he just oh, really? he's like it's so nuanced and there's just so many things that you see when you go back and rewatch it and he mm-hmm. was just so excited I was watching it nice okay um, well we'll dig into a little bit I'm, I'm interested to hear what some of that might have been if you remember um, but yeah this this and Fargo I think were uh, uh, 
Sublime films, and this, I think, just hits it because of the music element, which I suspect we're going to talk music in a bit. Yes. Yeah. We will. Maybe so. Uh, do you want to tell everyone who's listened for like five, ten minutes already what <laughs> Oh Brother Art Thou is actually about? So IMDb says, in the Deep South during the 1930s, three escaped convicts search for hidden treasure while a relentless lawman pursues them. Is Mississippi the Deep South? Yes. Okay. Very much so. Is there a shallow South? Is that the Carolinas? Yeah. Okay. Georgia, Carolina, North and, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of Deep South, Southern Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama. Right. And a little bit of Louisiana is oh, deep south. You're just naming states of me now. <laughs> no, I'm really not. Don't you listen to Southern Fried Pop Culture? Well, I do, but you are still also just naming states. <laughs> <laughs> plus plus this one county in Iowa or something. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Okay. Um, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is a crime comedy drama from the year 2000, written, produced, and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It stars George Clooney, John Turturro, Tim Blake Nelson, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, and Charles Durning. Set in rural Mississippi during the Great Depression, the film is loosely based on Homer's The Odyssey, incorporating mythology from the American South. The film's title is taken from a 1941 film called Sullivan's Travels, in which a director pretends to be homeless and travels trying to find the real America so he can make his next next picture, Oh Brother Art Thou, to show the true America. Critics gave the film some mixed reviews, enjoying it in the general, but not finding it as strong as previous efforts from the Coen brothers. It did receive a fairly wide release during 2001, during which time it performed okay at the box office. It is currently listed 46th on the all-time top-grossing movies that were never in the top five earning movies during their release. Huh. <laughs> That's so specific. It really is. I, <laughs> I had a very good time with that list of 200 films that... Never entered the top five, but are in the top earning ever. Brilliant. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, I went back and watched Sullivan's Travels. I'd always known that story that it was taken from this old film, but I'd never actually seen the old film. Okay. You saying that Joseph saw stuff, like uh, the more you watch this film, the more you pick up on things and details. There mm-hmm. is stuff integrated, just little things like, I can see what they're doing now. So, so the okay. fact... Uh, you know, this guy wants to make a film. He makes comedies and musicals, uh, this guy Sullivan. And he wants to make a really serious, socially conscious film based on this book, Oh Brother, Aren't Thou? Which seems to be a kind of great American novel type thing. Okay. Um, and because it is obviously a film from the 1940s, it's got these very old-fashioned filmmaking techniques, such as the screen wiping or fading in on a spot and coming out from a spot, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, which they do in Oh Brother, Aren't They? And it's hmm. just, you know, the whole sort of sepia tone puts you in mind of an old-timey film. Right. But actually, yes. I think they are doing a little bit of work to try and make it feel like a film made by a director in 1941. Okay. <laughs> which, oh, that's quite cute, actually. That's you know, <laughs> and, and the bit when they get on the train is... I think in reference to a bit from Sullivan's Travels, when he and this woman that he travels with want to try to jump on a train and it just takes them ages and it's huge effort and the hobos on the train look at them and go, oof, amateurs. <laughs> and I think their trouble getting on the train in No Brother Art Thou is a reference to that moment. And Okay. It's very nice. Interesting. This, uh, you know, a sign of it being 1941, though, it stars this woman, Veronica, I cannot remember her last name. I'm really sorry. I'll look it up. Um, Veronica something. And she is like, the main thing on the poster is a picture of this woman. She's got this glorious hair that sort of covers half her face. It's all, you know, mm-hmm. sexy and alluring and so on. Um, and she's on credited on the poster. Veronica Lake is her name. Mm. However, her character is just called The Girl. Second billing Aww. on the posters. Doesn't need a name, though. Only men get names in the 1940s. <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, things aren't fixed and better, but at least characters get names these days. Mostly. Mostly. Like, like a character on the poster would get a name. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I also worked out that's the 10th film I've watched for the podcast that was not actually for the podcast. Oh, okay. In, in watching random other stuff. I wondered how many I'd ever watched. It turns out it's 10. Only 10 in three years. Mm. And, and I like thought it'd be more. Five or six books and... <laughs> yeah. All right. Not not counting vampire films. 
Not counting <laughs> vampire films. Okay, okay. You're so dedicated. It's great. Clearly. Uh, how were you able to watch this? Where, this, where was this available in the US? Uh, you have to rent it. It's on Amazon and all of the other digital video rental establishments. Very good. Over here, it's on Sky. Uh, as you would expect, I have the two disc collectors set on DVD. Of course which you do. Is one of my early DVDs. I had that whilst at university. Um, okay. I, I I will throw a picture up on Instagram if I remember when this comes out because the inlay for it, it's got a whole book with information and facts and mm. trivia and stuff, and an advert for the DVD and video in the back. <laughs> That's how old this DVD is. They were selling videos. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Weird. Okay. Okay, uh, big cast. I'm not sure we've had George Clooney on before. I think I don't think we have. I think we might have had other people. So George Clooney, Holly Hunter, John Turturro, uh, Tim Blake Nelson. Have you seen their other stuff? What What are they famous from? I mostly know George Clooney from ER and then Ocean's Eleven. Did you watch ER? I watched some of ER. Okay. Um, but then he was also like his very early, early acting. He was on this great show called The Facts of Life. Okay. From the late 80s. Okay. It's wonderful. It's about a women's boarding school, a girls' boarding school. Right. It's fantastic. Um, Holly Hunter, uh, she was in a I knew I knew her from somewhere and I couldn't mm-hmm. figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her filmography and finally realized it's this serial killer movie called Copycat. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That I really liked back in the day. So, Gwenny Weaver. Yes. 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 I think. Yes. Maybe. Yes. Um, and then we did the firm on. Mm. No, we did the client. We didn't we did. do the firm. Yeah. We've been done the firm. We did the I client. Like the firm. The firm is a good film. Or oh, I, I remember it being a good film. And of course, uh, The Incredibles. And The Incredibles, which we have done on the show. Yes. And yes. and we've not yet covered Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice, but you know, one day we must come to such classic films that must be watched. Mm-hmm. Mm. Hmm. John Turturro? <laughs> no idea, but he looks familiar. Okay. He looks like Adam Sandler in some scenes, but he's not Adam Sandler. <sighs> what oh is that look for? Oh my God. <laughs> Are you saying they all look alike? <laughs> <sighs> no. <laughs> no. Um. He was, of course, in The Big Lebowski. He is Jesus. Oh, okay. Who I think he's getting that's his own probably spin-off why. as well. So. Really? That's probably why he looks familiar to me then. Um, Tim Blake Nelson, IMDb says I've seen things he's in, but that's all I've got. Okay. No idea. He, You know how I've been raving about the Watchmen series? Yes. He's one of the best parts of the Watchmen series, which is okay. one of the best series ever. Like, if you've not okay. heard me rave about it, just go watch that series. It's amazing. <laughs> he is really good in it. He's gripping as anything. Okay. Interesting. I'll get around to it one day. And he also appears to have been in Scooby-Doo 2 with Seth Green and Sarah Michelle Gellar. Was Seth Green in Scooby-Doo? Uh, Scooby-Doo 2, certainly. Scooby-Doo 1, not so sure. All right. I have not seen other Scooby-Doo movies. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sarah uh, Michelle Gellar was not enough of a draw to get me to watch Scooby-Doo. Clearly. Uh, they're not terrible. <laughs> We're not here to talk about Scooby Doo. Did you enjoy Oh Brother Where Art Now? I mean, more or less. Uh. It was entertaining, I guess. It was not what I expected. Okay. Um, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't actually know what it was about. Right. Yeah. And I didn't know what role the song played. I just knew. I mean, that song mm-hmm. is like super famous because of this movie. I mean, it was famous before this movie, but this movie kind of did a resurgence of it. And then me living in the South, Alison Krauss covered it. Patty Loveless covered it. I listened to country music. So, like, it just was part of right. the culture. There is a cover of that song on Dylan's first ever album. I'm, yes. Mm. Yes. I did see that, which is why I <laughs> clarified that this was a resurgence of its popularity. Um, and it, I, I don't know. I, I think part of me expected it to be some si- some sort of stupid humor comedy. Okay. Like almost a parody maybe. I don't I don't know why I thought that. Okay. Other than it, I think maybe all I really knew about it was George Clooney 
wearing a long fake beard and lip syncing. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which I'm sure you can see can lend yourself to thinking this is going to be stupid humor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> In that Mel Brooks sort of camp. Yes, yeah, exactly, okay. Okay. exactly. Um, and, and so watching it and then finding I had no idea that it was very loosely based on the Odyssey, mm. which I've never read. Okay, good, good, okay. <laughs> I feel like if I knew more about the Odyssey, I might have appreciated parts of this movie more than I did. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, the Coen brothers never read it, so why should I they? did see that. Yeah, they right. read the comic book version. Yeah. <laughs> I think they got the highlights, you know, the Cyclops and the Siren, which I was able to pick up. Yeah. Like, oh, there must have been Sirens in the Odyssey. <laughs> exactly. I th- like, I think they go into some detail on some of it and in, in some of the ways, like, some of the stuff that happens to the Cyclops, that happens to the guy running for thing, whose name is Homer, I think. Homer Stokes. Yep. Um, so I think they they get some of the detail in there, but at the same time, it is it, it is not like this is an adaptation. It is very loosely. Very loosely, yeah. Based, yeah. Mm. yeah. So I, I can't say I loved it. I can't say that I think it's a brilliant piece of cinema although if i watched it more i might because i i got the feeling the coen brothers had a very specific message with this movie but i'm not sure what it is okay um just because of some of the choices that they made in particular the speech and cadence of george clooney's character mm-hmm. so i and maybe maybe this is one of those movies you do have to see more than once to, to fully appreciate Maybe, maybe you just have. Maybe that's just true of Coen Brothers films. <laughs> well, a-, a lot of people say that that their okay. films you need. Um, Mark Kermode even talks about one of them, and I cannot remember which one. He's like, it might be the Big Lebowski. He says, you know, I, I watched it, I didn't like it. I watched it, I didn't like it. And on the fifth watch, I mm-hmm. got it and started liking it. Like that's what. So yeah, my guest on that episode was was my friend Kevin Klein, and that's what he said. He did right. not like it the first time he watched it, and it's t- it took him several times. And now every time he watches it, like twenty viewings later, like he loves it and he finds something new. I don't think I have it in me to watch it that many times. No, there are so many movies. <laughs> don't spend your time so... on a movie you don't like. <laughs> you know. Um, okay, let's talk. I either want to talk a continuation of the thing we had a few weeks ago about expectation in coming into mm-hmm. something, because, you know, you're surrounded by people who love this film and had told you they love this film and are excited for you to watch it. Or I want to talk to you about the representation of the South in film. What are we kicking off? Why with? not both? Let's, let's do the representation of South in film. Okay. Because you saying the thing about George Clooney there and the fact he's you know, the gift of the gab thing, but actually he's the, you know, like the, the um, you know, like the Laurel and Hardy thing. One of them is, mm-hmm. and the Bill and Ted thing almost. One of them is loquacious, but not that smart. One of them is silent, but a bit smarter. Right. He's the talkative, but not so smart one. And I, I worry that there was an aspect of it that was mocking the sort of, you know, yokel hick thing. I actually felt Pete and Delmar were more mocking, right? Okay, than than ever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Delmar more than anybody because Delmar was very clearly the, the dumb hillbilly, yes. of the trio. Okay, mm-hmm. and he was very stereotypically so. Pete was more middle of the road. Yeah, more more an actual criminal as well. Yes, mm-hmm. that too. So I I didn't really. Honestly, I didn't feel like they were trying to mock the South at all. Okay, good. In any in anything that I saw, um, I felt they set a story in the 1930s South, and they tried to be true to it while also telling the story they wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. And I didn't find myself having a lot of trouble with that part of it. Okay, good. Okay. Now, if if Dr. Kelly Jones is listening to this and has a different opinion, I would love to hear it and love to chat with her about it. Oh, yeah. If you do this on Southern Fried Pop, I'm coming on to just talk, <laughs> talk music with you guys, basically. Because um, that's the thing. The, to my untrained eye of not knowing what the representations are like, 
mm-hmm. there is an aspect of it of, oh, yeah, it's doing American South on film. So it's, you know, yeah, of course, they're dumb. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting the, the way you're saying that it's them as characters rather than them as emblematic of people of the South. And, and, right. And perhaps that's because they meet people who are not like that. Mm-hmm. It is these three dumb criminals. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess the the governor characters, the, the the candidate and the actual governor were a little bit more stereotypical. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, they were all fat white men. Blustery. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, but honestly, I'd forgotten about them until just now. So. Okay. That's, I guess, part of it. Um, I think there are bits that people may argue are ridiculous and i'm thinking of things like the the mass baptism right okay scene mm-hmm. um <clears throat> i have been a member of a church who does that mm-hmm. not right. maybe necessarily walking zombie like in the woods singing all dressed in white mm-hmm. but a group of people actually going to a natural water source for a baptism right okay that happens mm. um it, it happened as recently as the 90s for sure right I'm sure it still happens, you know. So in the 30s, it would have absolutely been something that a southern country church would do. And it's interesting because I think that's one of the bits, it doesn't feel mocking or putting down. There's an aspect of it. They're saying, you know, look at these sheep following him to get baptized because they've got nothing else to live for, that kind of thing. They're putting Mm -hmm. some of that argument across. But the actual, the baptism, the community going on here, is presented as welcoming and warm and nice people going through a thing, singing a beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful song. You know, that's a song I used to play yes. when I was going to bed because it's just so beautiful and calming. You know, right. it's a terrific song. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't fit, you know, in another film, and we say this in other things, it, 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 there is a way of presenting that as this is a horrid, weird cult or something. Right, yes. And, and in the same way, they don't do it with the Ku Klux Klan. There are other films that I've seen that show that and show how it is despicable and awful. Mm-hmm. I don't think this film goes quite that far. I think you've got two or three characters represented as these are awful people mm-hmm. through their actions. But what we see is dancing in motion with each other and singing. <laughs> I'm fairly certain that no KKK rally ever had choreographed dancing. Right. Okay. So I actually found that to be weird, and I'm not sure what they were trying to say. It They didn't condemn the rally, but they also didn't support it because they did rescue Johnny. Like, they didn't allow the lynching to happen. No, and it was going to be a lynching, so it's not a positive thing, but there's also no necessarily denouncement of it. Right. And when they did denounce the governor candidate um homer stokes they were denouncing not his actions they were denouncing him for getting in the way of the singing yeah it's still like i feel like the movie could have made a better stand there against the kkk and racism in the south in the 30s but i wonder if they didn't because they were telling a story set in the 30s and this is how these characters would have reacted in that yeah, situation. That's fair. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, it depends if you're going for very similitude or the message you should be putting across. Because the thing, I, one of the things that stood out, not, you know, it might only be in the last few years watching it and having watched other things and Ava DuVernay's 13th, stuff like that. Every other member of the chain gang is black. These are, I think, the only white prisoners. And that, yes. is, that is obviously a thing. The, the the fact that the amendment says something about no one can be indentured servitude unless they're a criminal. And, mm-hmm. and suddenly black communities get criminalized. Right. And it's like, I think they are having a message in there with the fact, you know, that opening shot of the chain gang breaking rocks and singing. And you don't see George Clooney or John Turturro or Tim Blake Nelson. It's just all black men. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think there is pointed stuff about it. But they don't denounce it. But at the same time, they don't denounce the evangelical church baptism thing. Right. It's it's more like a presentation mm. than a statement, mm. I think. But again, I, I'm not entirely sure what the Coen brothers were trying to say with this movie. 
Like, I very clearly got the feeling they were trying to tell me something. Okay. <laughs> I just don't know what it is. So, the other point was expectation. We're comfortable mm-hmm. with its portrayal of the South, then. They could have gone further in some ways, but so, at the same yeah. time, they're not mocking in other ways. So, you know. Right. Bad. The expectation on you. I, I'm interested what that has played into your watching of it, and watching it with someone who clearly loves it, and to hear what Joseph had picked up and what he would he would want to comment on. He actually didn't comment a lot because he knew he he tries to keep it quiet when I'm okay. watching something for the first time. He doesn't want to impart his thoughts on me. Good on him. Um, and then we didn't actually, he wanted to know if I liked it and he was disappointed that I didn't immediately go, oh my God, I loved it. It was so good. He was really <laughs> disappointed. But other than, I don't know. I wasn't really thinking about other people's expectations on this one. Right. Okay. Mostly just because my own expectation was so wildly off base for what it was. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes sense in my head. Mm -hmm. So this one, I I don't think this one fell victim to the same fate as other things when it comes to expectation. Okay. Because I didn't really have any, I think. Other than, you know, I thought it might be a parody or the stupid humor thing. And I figured out very quickly that it wasn't that. And so I didn't, it, that didn't color my viewing of it. And I just had never really thought very much about it because I haven't heard people talk about this movie in a really long time. Mm -hmm. Like it was very, very popular when it came out. I I bet where you come from, I bet it was. Yes. Especially given that I lived in North Carolina at the time. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it's not something that I really thought about. Okay. Okay. You look like you don't like that answer. No, no, I'd, I'm fine with that answer. I'm trying to think if, if there's anything more we want to talk on that, if you want to expand on Joseph's thoughts on it. I think Joseph needs to write us an email and tell us what his thoughts are. <laughs> That's what I think. You're calling him out. I am. I am calling nice. him out. Nice. I am going to have him on this podcast at some point. Heck yeah. Um... <laughs> Let's talk the music. The music is so good. Okay. uh, I mean, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Is this a musical? It is absolutely not a musical. I think I agree. I think it is just a half step to the right away from being a musical, though. There, There is something that is a musical that we would go, oh, it is, but it almost isn't. Because mm-hmm. the music is core to the film. It is important that they sing that song twice and, and that it is them singing a song mm-hmm. is, is important to the story. Yes, but the music itself doesn't tell the story. And in musicals, the music tells part of the story. It's not just an addition to the story or a complement to the story. And in this movie, the okay. apart from the one song that was important to the plot, all of the music set tone, gave feelings, mm-hmm. kind of amplified what was happening on the screen on the screen. Mm-hmm. But it didn't actually add to the plot. Okay. We could have had the same story without the song. We didn't need the song to tell the story. And I think in a musical, the songs are part of the actual story. Okay. Now, this uh, we talked elsewhere on our Patreon-exclusive podcast, Mandy and Matthew's Excellent Adventures. Subscribe on Patreon and back us and you get access to a bonus show. Um, <laughs> we talked about this very thing on musicals, about how I, I don't like musicals where the music is expanding a point rather than delivering a point yes the, the the thing of you know i i will go and do this thing and then i'll sing a song about it i would rather they sang the song explaining what they're thinking of doing and then doing it mm-hmm. um and i'm wondering if this is the difference between classic musicals and modern musicals a classic musical often they sing a song about something that's just happened we are seven brides we are no, sorry we are seven brothers and now we're going to sing the song about how we have no women. <laughs> cool. Thanks, chaps. Well, 
Okay, but the other thing, though, is that in a musical, your characters sing the music. Mm-hmm. And in this, we only had the the Soggy Bottom Boys sing the one song. All of the other music was just kind of ethereal and part of the... Okay. Except for the choir, I guess. Oh, okay, I guess we had the the little girls and we had the choir, but they weren't central characters. And the Simons. To... And... Um, All right, fair enough. I had a friend called Rambling Joe. All right, fair enough. This is the thing. There is enough music in it that it's like, it could be a musical. It's not a musical. I, I Like I said, I think I agree with you. But it's just in that area of grey in the middle between... It wants to be a musical. Yes, maybe so. Maybe it's trying to do something different. Because there is a musical called Girl from the North Country. Um, set in this sort of era, maybe a bit before it, but it's set to music by Dylan. So they're mm. using Dylan's songs to sometimes explain a point or deliver a point. The song is not always 100% the right thing, but it's evoking the emotion and delivered in a way that evokes the emotion. Right. And it's beautiful, and I hope you you get to see it when it comes around at some point. All right. Phenomenal. Um, the music's pretty good, though. It is. I have to tell you, though, it felt a little... It, it made me nostalgic. Oh, yeah. Like, we talk a lot on Southern Fried Pop Culture when we're not on hiatus. We talk <laughs> a lot about how Southern movies make us feel like we've come home. Mm-hmm. Like, it gives us... Like, it's a bomb to our soul. Because neither Kelly or I live in the South anymore. Right. And the songs in this... the Actually, some of the specific songs... Um, like I'll Fly Away and others, some others. Um, but just the, the sound, the harmonies. This is the kind of music I grew up on. This is the kind of music that I was allowed to listen to when I wasn't allowed to listen to anything else. Right. And, and so for me, this is, it's just beautiful. And it was, oh, I haven't heard this in so long and I could just sit here and listen to this mm-hmm. for forever. I mean, eventually I'll want to listen to something else, but it was... It was just really nice. Yeah, when I first saw the film and then heard the soundtrack, yeah, I listened to it over and over again. And and I, my mum has told me, I must say, that she listened to it over and over again. I made her a copy for the car, which was her driving okay. to and from work album. Nice. For many years. Uh, my, oh, good. My mum doesn't sing. She's not happy singing in public and people hearing it. This is the one she sings along to. And it nice. is, it's just, it's a phenomenal mix. It's not too hard in any place. All the songs are, uh, are the, the arrangements themselves are so well done. They've got performers mm-hmm. like Alison Krauss, Emmylou Harris delivering some of these, mm-hmm. which, you know, some of the best at what they do. Yep. And and I think that might be what's kept me coming back, certainly after that first time, because I cannot remember watching for the first time. I've seen it so often. Right, so, okay. The the fact the music is so good makes me want to come back to it. And then eventually you go, and it's also a satisfying film at the same time. I will definitely listen to the soundtrack. Nice. And, like, the music was so well received. People enjoyed it so much. They then put on concerts of this music called Down From The Mountain. And, oh. and then, then there are live CDs and albums of music from this being delivered and, and the artist who recorded this music then delivering live things with music mm-hmm. based on this. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I know who Emmy Lou Harris is is because of this film, frankly. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. She's a household name for me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. But yeah, the, the music was such a big part of the conversation with it when it came out. I'm just looking at, at it now. Excuse me. So the, yeah, Down from the Mountain concert at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Mm, so, I bet yeah. that's lovely. But yeah, the the only thing I can say about this is, is just how like I watch it and I'm just go, ah, oh, it just all works out so well. Well, okay, but they don't actually tell us what happens to Pete and Delmar at the end. No, it's not their story. It's not, but we went through this adventure with them, and so I kind of want to know that they're okay too. Okay. Yeah, no, I think I'm comfortable with they're going to be the brain trust, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Because you do picture them staying together as a trio now. 
Yes. And perhaps that's part of that satisfaction with it because they they do work well together. You know, they've got that sort of... Um, so is it John Turturro's Delmar? I am so bad with names. No, no, John Turturro is Pete. Okay, so Pete and Everett are sort of a loggerhead, sort of mm-hmm. coming at things from different angles. And Delmar is the calming influence between them. I'm with you guys. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that that was a proper laugh out loud moment. <laughs> and there's there's so many of just moments like that of crawling over the cinema like we thought you was a toe. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> I can only picture the three of them staying together at the end of the film. Right. Okay. I think Going back to something that you said earlier when you were talking about the way the film looked, how it was very, um, like, sepia-toned. Mm-hmm. I Fun fact, this is the first feature film to ever be digitally color-corrected in its entirety. Okay. Nice. Like, they recolored the entire film because when they filmed it, Mississippi was too green. Yeah. I and bet. the Coen brothers wanted it to look like it was the Old South in Depression. Like dusty, they wanted it July. to be dusty. And yes, exactly. Um, I can't imagine how much work and time went into doing that. Yeah. The, the There was a great thing alongside that with that um, one of the humane animal. Oh, yes. The humane society. The yes. One, they actually thought they had shot and run over real cows. I did too. <laughs> I did too. Like I was horrified that okay, the shooting of the cow I was fine with, but when they ran <laughs> over that cow, it looked so real that I knew it couldn't possibly be real. <laughs> like they wouldn't do that. But yeah. I yeah, I read that that he had to watch it like 10 times before he was convinced yeah. that it was digital. Amazing. It was really well done. And, and following up Tron with, you know, com- computers are cheating. You <laughs> right. know, and you see what you can do with computers now. So, and I say now, 20 years ago. <laughs> right. <sighs> We're so old. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think I've seen this at the cinema. I think I've only seen it on DVD. Okay, so you did not go see it when it first came out. No, I mean, I was at university. I, did, I saw very little. <laughs> okay. Um and there aren't many of the Coen brothers I've actually seen out of the cinema. Okay. I mean, they started making in the 80s, so way before I would. Um, but I don't think it affects it. I think the film does work on the small screen. I think in some ways it works better. Mm-hmm. Okay. How do you feel about this movie as a follow-up to The Big Lebowski? And when I say follow-up, I mean this is the next movie they yeah. did. So, like, they... I mean, it's absolutely what they do. Just jumping genre to genre, style to style in different things. Mm -hmm. Because I think that was a follow-up to Fargo, maybe. Which is a a little bit of a leap. It's it's not quite as big a leap. But when you then look at other ones they've done where they've gone to No Country for Old Men, Intolerable Cruelty, so rom-com, sort of assassin crime drama. And they've gone to... Wait, I'm sorry. Which of those is a rom-com? Intolerable Cruelty. That's a rom-com? It is a rom-com with George Clooney and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Interesting. Okay. It's it's not well-liked in general. And I think part of the issue with it is it's the Coen brothers do a rom-com is what it is. So it's not fully a rom-com and it's trying to be a bit untraditional, non-traditional. Okay. And it takes that a little bit far. It's, I, I, it's been a year or two since I watched it, but there was, it, it, there was just a moment where, like, okay, now it needs to become a traditional rom-com and deliver the, the mm. happily ever after the stuff you like about it. And it, it doesn't quite do that. And it was like, ah. Oh. If they'd just shown how well they could make a traditional rom-com on top of the non-traditional stuff. Right, right. Landed, okay. But... Huh. All right. Is it just the name of it that's throwing you there? I think so. <laughs> okay. That is not the name of a rom-com. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. The word cruelty is in the title. I mean, we've we've kind of already talked about 
our favorite thing about this movie, the music. Yeah. Like, hands down, I think, for both of us, yeah. the music makes it worth watching. And, and I did expect you to love it for that. Okay. And the music is oh, sensational. And, and, I mean, the soundtrack's wonderful because it's got all the music. It's got the full-length versions of music. It's got two, three, four versions of Man of Constant Sorrow on there. Um, yeah, it's really good. So that's worth checking out. But there is something about watching it in situ in the film. Mm-hmm. And the way he delivers it, the bit with pit pulling his beard down and dancing and the, <laughs> the reaction of the crowd when he, they start singing it, it's really good. It does, it adds a moment of triumph to it. Yeah, yeah, it does. When there is still a lot of the film to go, because it feels like that's kind of wrapping everything up, but actually there's a whole sequence after that. You know, they didn't actually wrap up the... I don't even know what his name was, but the the lawman who was with the dog, mm. who was searching for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't actually wrap up that story. No. Right? Because my, my initial thought was, oh, nobody told him they got pardoned, right? Mm-hmm. And then he didn't care. Yep. But then the valley gets flooded, and we don't ever see them again. We only see Pete, Delmar, and Everett. So are we supposed to think that all of the cops died? You presume we're not in a position to arrest them and then at some point got told, no, you can't do this to these guys. And frankly, shouldn't have been hanging them. <laughs> so. Right, but it was, yeah. Of course not. But that's what people did <laughs> well, in yeah. the South in the 30s. So so what else? Is there anything other than the music that you think made this a worthwhile film? You know, I really enjoyed George Clooney's performance. Mm. I liked just listening to him talk. Right. Like, I didn't even always understand what he was saying, but I liked hearing him say it. Okay. And I don't entirely know how he did it. Like, it's... Mm. Like, you know, I'm I'm starting to get into this voice acting thing, right? Yeah. And so I am in a place where I have to look at words on the screen and figure out how to project them how to interpret them and how to make somebody else hear what those words say Mm -hmm. and so i'm sitting here thinking about him having read the words that are in that script and put that life into them right and he figured out how to do it and he just did it so well in an unexpected way okay like a lot of the words that he said i would have chosen a completely different inflection and most normal people would have, and he did it in a way that was so unique to this character in the way this character needed to be brought to life, which is what actors do. Mm. Like, this is why people like George Clooney win Oscars, right? Because they can do this so well. Mm-hmm. But I feel like his performance here was spectacular, okay. honestly. I do. Mm. Because he did something unique from my perspective. Did you see the story about Clooney preparing for the film? No. Okay. There's a whole story about how he agreed to do this film without having read the script. Which... Okay. Yeah, when the Coen brothers come and say, we want you to star in our new film, the follow-up to the follow-up to Fargo. Like, yeah, there was... (laughs) And, you know, on the back of him having just released Batman and Robin. If you're George Clooney, (laughs) yeah, yeah, you sign up to do this flipping film. Right. Clooney, I'm going to read you from Wikipedia. Clooney did not immediately understand his character and sent the script to his uncle Jack, who lived in Kentucky, asking him to read the entire script into a tape recorder. Oh, I did read this. Unknown to Clooney, in his recording, Jack, a devout Baptist, omitted all instances of the word damn and hell from the Cohen scripts, which only became known to Clooney after the directors pointed this out to him during shooting. (laughs) (laughs) But when you are playing a character that's so emblematic of their environment of the situation of their upbringing Mm -hmm. getting someone who has some of that to help you with it is is very smart that's exactly what you do yeah and and you you know you make the comment about this is how they win oscars this yeah you prepare with every tool in your arsenal right so yeah yeah good on him for doing that (laughs) (laughs) i yeah no i think it's great because it's and even still i'm having his uncle read the lines for him and record the lines is is great for the accent. But I feel like Clooney still gave it something else. Mm, embodies it. Mm. Yes. Right. With with particularly because he did not speak the way normal people speak. Right? Like mm-hmm. he was what's the word you use? Loquacious? Yep. Right? Yeah. Very much like Bill and is it Bill and Bill and Ted? No, yeah, Ted. Yeah, yeah, Bill. 
one of them, whichever yeah. one, um, like uses all these big words that you don't expect them to use. And I don't know. So he had to find a way to make them make sense and to work. And he just had this very particular cadence that was more than just a Mississippian. I don't even know if that's the right word. Mississippi. I miss, miss someone from Mississippi in the thirties. <laughs> a person from which Mississippi is originated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. I just want to give him credit because I feel like he yeah. did something special with the character. Absolutely. It, it is. And is it also because it's George Clooney? Like, we're so used to him playing George Clooney. Man in a suit, looking good, mm-hmm. making deals happen, maybe. doing things. And this is this is a bit out of character for him almost. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's a little bit of it. It's a different George Clooney than I'm accustomed to seeing. Mm. Like, I'm accustomed to the Nespresso guy now, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in in the same sort of thing that I have with Tim Blake Nelson. Because seeing him playing characters who are capable and intelligent is a bit strange for me. Because mm-hmm. I'm so used to him from this. Playing yes. the, the dumb, you know, toothy hick type character. Mm-hmm. And then you see him as hyper-intelligent professor in The Incredible Hulk. You see him as... Mirror guy from Watchmen. Yeah. Okay. Well, Matthew, are there any other things that you really liked besides the music? There are jokes in this that I think catch me out every time. I I, I think perhaps because they are delivered almost very low key. Where where the the big stuff is the funny stuff. The um, the horny toad stuff. The them singing and uh, prancing around and so on. But things like, you know, Mrs. Hargwall up, up and R-U-N-N-O-F-T. <laughs> I mean, that is mocking the hick, you know, illiterate types. Yes. But it's very good. It's a good job. It is, and, and they kept doing it. Yeah. Cause I think the, they did it at least three times. Yeah, the kid clearly knows what it is, so he then spells it in the same way himself. Right. Yeah, it's good. Um... And I like, I, I like the sort of interplay between Pappy and his staff, because mm-hmm. they've all got these characters, whether they're sort of sycophantic, you know, hangers-on types, or Pappy himself, who, Pappy seems to be quite a capable businessman who wants to be governor, mm-hmm. like you say, you know, that's what rich white men do in America. Um, but I, I, I always quite enjoy their scenes on screen, because they get so little, and they're quite fun when they do it. And and somehow in that, and it might just be because it's Charles Durning who is genuinely quite a charming character on screen. You want to root for them. I don't know what it is. Like everything in the film is saying root for Homer. He's there for the little mm-hmm. man. He, you know, not this mass media, not this business manager right. with money. But there's something about the way they do it, even before all the KKK stuff with Homer, um, that makes you go, God, I hope. Charles Durning actually wins. I hope Pappy or Daniel wins. I don't know that I felt that. Okay. I think, I'm not sure I cared. Right. Honestly, okay. until we got to the end. Yeah, I, w- I wonder what it is that makes me go, oh, I hope he beats that other guy. I wonder if it's the cynicism of I'm here for the little man, so he has a little man on stage with him sweeping up. Like, and particularly now, that whole sweeping up the governor thing it mm-hmm. feels very drain the swamp. Oh. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It I didn't notice until they did the the actual on when they were on stage with the brooms mm-hmm. that he had an actual little man with mm. him. And I was like, oh wow, he's literally for the little man. Yeah. Like that's okay. And yeah, it's it feels cynical, I think, mm-hmm. but up against the general crapness of Papio Daniel's <laughs> campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. What else? Any any other jokes that you liked? Uh, I'm scrolling through the quotes. There probably are. Uh, like I said, there's lots of things, and and it's just, you know, it's the way George Clooney boxes with his hat, arms out sideways. <laughs> Uh-huh. It's just so ridiculous. And then he finally gets thrown out. And the guy, you know, says, uh, you know, don't come back to the Woolsworth. It's just, it's such a funny sort of way of turning the phrase. Right, right. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, there was one. Um, so after they pick up Tommy, and this is right. So we've had the yep. baptism scene. So Pete and Delmar are baptized, and Tommy has just come in and he sold his soul to the devil. Yep. Devil. And Everett devil comes goes down to Georgia stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Everett goes, I guess I'm the only one who remains unaffiliated. <laughs> and I cracked up at that. That was pretty good. Yeah. It, it, there's so many small, almost throwaway lines. And that's mm-hmm. that's where they put the comedy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Delmar says, oh, George, not the livestock when he shoots the cows. Oh, George. <laughs> oh, George. And yeah, that's pretty great. And when they're hearing the, is, I think it's when they're hearing the congregation, it's just Delmar like... Gopher? <laughs> <laughs> yes, over and over, gopher. gopher? And, and, and they have this whole exchange whilst watching the baptism of, you know, a third of a gopher would, would only arouse my hunger. It wouldn't say it. Oh, you can have the whole thing. We found a whole gopher <laughs> village. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, no, it's, it was funny. Mm. It did have a lot of fun, funny, funny moments for sure. I, I bet they had a lot of fun making it and recording this stuff. Oh, I'm sure they did. All right. Is there anything else that we need to discuss about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I don't think so. I don't have a closing question for you. Uh, we, we talk- did you catch the Buffy reference in this movie? Did I catch the Buffy reference in this movie? Not knowingly. All right. Um, oh, let me look her up her name. Hang on. <laughs> One of the sirens... Was played by a woman named Musetta Vander, uh-huh. who was the praying mantis in Teacher's Pet. Was she? Natalie French. Oh, well, yes. there we go. So we have a Buffy reference in this one. Crossover. <laughs> Is this a crossover episode? Um, <laughs> having seen the little moving on, having seen the list of um, uh, Coen Brothers movies. Uh-huh. Are there others you want to watch? Are there any on that list that stand out to you as, yeah, we should really watch? I kind of want to watch Raising Arizona. Okay. Because of Nick Cage. Right. Interesting. Um, that's what I've got right now. Okay. Okay, so that's probably the next one to hit up then. Yeah, I think so. Maybe Burn After Reading. Okay. And it sounds like maybe you think we should do Fargo. Fargo is one of my all-time great movies, so I will watch Fargo at any point for anyone. Burn After Reading, I remember not enjoying, but I don't know why. And it does have Tilda Swinton in it, so maybe? (laughs) Okay. And it's got George Clooney and Brad Pitt. It does. With that gif of Brad Pitt that you would have seen several times and not known it was from that film. Yes. I think I did know it was from okay, this film. Right. But, yeah. So, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe. All right. Ooh. At some point, I need to watch Inside Lewin Davis again, because that is a film I think needs multiple watches. Okay. Mm. I'm, I'm not even sure I can recommend it to you to watch the once, because having watched it once, I was like, oh, I need to start that from the beginning now. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In a good way. Okay. All right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation and tell us your favorite Coen Brothers film, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing, or you can drop us an email to podcast at eloquentgushing.com. And I fully expect Joseph to do that to tell me his thoughts on <laughs> this movie. So it's official. <laughs> Joseph. Podcast at eloquentgushing.com. Nice. Nice. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. I'm in trouble with one of you, so. <laughs> um, I asked up top if you want to recommend us to friends, to followers, social media, that kind of thing. It's amazing. It really does um, help other people to find us and help, you know, those clicks and listens go up. 
It's the important thing. Um, and if you do like what we do, if you like the sound of an exclusive extra bonus show every month, uh, you can help fund us on Patreon. We are completely funded by our listeners like you, and anything you give, it gives access to those exclusive shows, gives you early access, gives you merch like stickers and magnets, and it gives you, you can even get discounts off our merch store. If you want to find out more, you can go to patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And we will be back next week with another episode where we are going to talk about Die Hard 4 and 5. So until then, I am Mandy Kay. And you are my sunshine. Aww. <laughs> Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, go to eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at eloquentgushing.